0: Church leadership sermon. Would you turn to First John Four? Around verse seven. John 4, verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Did you hear what that just said? I mean, that's kind of politically incorrect, so let's read it again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is, God is love. God is love and he is the uh, the uh maker of love, the creator of love. And so any love that we enjoy in this life comes from him. And when we love other people, that's from him. And, and you think about it, uh... I don't know if you've ever been in New York City or, or a big city where you can buy, you know, uh, uh, cheap knockoffs of original uh, uh, items. You know, you can go and maybe try to get a quote-unquote Rolex Rolex uh, on the streets of New York, or maybe you go to a flea market. We went to one in Orlando once, and they were selling like designer purses for like fifteen dollars. You know, and you could like stock up on those things and sell them on eBay. But you know deep down that they're fake. They're fake. And, and and women you don't you don't want the guy to open up the ring and will you marry me and when you're thinking is it really cubic zirconia you know like that's just kind of you just don't really want that and and you know in one way all that doesn't matter really cuz that's just stuff in the world but but i say it to say that there's a lot of cheap knockoffs of love today and it's in our culture it's on our tv it's in our workplace it's everywhere you look it's cheap it's a knockoff, but it looks a little bit like the real thing. And the world has bought this. You know, the world has bought into it. It's just everywhere. And, and so, as much as the world likes to say, you know, if, if you're going to get a watch, you might as well get the real thing. If you're going to get a ring, you better get a real ring, a diamond ring, a big ring, you know. You better get the real thing. We have a message for the world that this is the real thing. That the other acts of love out there are not really love as God defines it. It's fake, it's cheap, it's a knockoff. That's, that's what the Word tells us. Let's not settle for less. And, and then it says, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into this world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Clearly, God has defined what love is. Love is Jesus' death on the cross for you and I, which is why it says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. We define our love by what Jesus did for us. Another way you can look at this is, and this might be depressing or it might be the most freeing thing you ever hear, that the most perfect act of love you will ever receive in your entire life has already been given for you. You know? If you're dating and you're looking for love, as they say, it, it, whatever that date can do for you, and maybe that person will marry you, but it will never compare to the cross of Christ. It will never reach that height. Okay? So whatever, whoever of you are looking for love... Stop and look at Christ first. If you start to understand that love, all the love in the world starts to make a little more sense. And you start to see things as they truly are, and you really, truly feel loved. And, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. If you look at the next couple of verses here, it, it gets even better, you know. No one has ever seen God Verse 12, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Um, You know, (laughs) the way we love other people, the way we love each other, the way we love enemies reflects how we love God according to this. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. If we love other people that way. That's how we know God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So, if you're not loving your enemies, if you're not loving your spouse, if you're not loving other people in the church, if you're not loving them, then this verse says, maybe God doesn't really live in you. Because if he did live in you, you'd be loving. If he did live in you, maybe your marriage would look different. Maybe you'd look at that person that hates you in a different light. Maybe you'd love them. I don't know, but it seems like we need to do a better job focusing on the source of love Instead of all that the world tells us about love, I remember at uh, summer camp, boy, uh, I was a sophomore or a junior in high school, and uh, they had a terrible activity at that Christian summer camp. They you could write love notes to people in the camp, and at dinner time they would make you come if the note was written to you. And by the way, it was anonymous, you know. If the note was written to you, they would make you come to the front during the. Uh, During the dinner, and you would stand there in front of the hundred people at the camp, you're in your group. That's about how many were in my group. And, uh, and they would read this love note in front of everybody, you know. Then you had to figure out, like, who wrote that stinking thing, you know, like, who embarrassed you like that? So you'd be like, you know, trying to figure out who wrote that. You'd be asking the girls, you know, who wrote that thing about me, you know, and, and, and you'd do all that. And so, um, I don't know. We, we settle, we settle for so much less. Than what Christ has offered. And I'm not saying that romantic love is not wonderful and amazing. It, it is. That too is the gift of God. That romantic kind of love. But if that's all there is to love. Or if your romantic love is not grounded in the love of Christ. We've got problems. Verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. You know So. I'm just trusting that the Spirit will work love out in your life and whatever area in your life lacks love, I don't know what those areas are, but it could be marriage, it could be family, it could be enemies. But whatever that is, I I hope and I pray that the Spirit would work love out through you. People ought to come in here and and feel like this is the most loving place you could be, that this ought to be the way our church is characterized. And when we go down and do, do coffee break, it ought to be the most loving environment you've ever seen. You know, it, it ought to be. We ought to have the corner on love. The church ought to. Because we know the God of love. That's all I want to say about that. So, um, would you now turn to First Timothy uh, chapter 3? It was going to be an awkward transition no matter how you did it, you know, so you might as well just go for it. <laughs> I was singing and I was thinking, how am I going to transition from love to, I know I know, it's Valentine's weekend, you know, I hope you had a good Valentine's Day, by the way. Um, hope you got flowers, even though that's not what love is. And I hope you got cards and dinners, even though that's not what love is. But those are acts of love. But those are acts of love. Um, those flow from a heart that loves Christ. I, I pray that that's what they do, you know, and that they don't flow from um, a Hallmark holiday, okay? So, uh, yeah, I was singing and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I can talk about how leaders in the church ought to be the best people at love. Maybe I should say that, you know? It's like, no, let's just, all right. <laughs> let's just just do it, okay? All right, um, if I want to look at 1 Timothy 3, if you 're like me you 've got people in your life that you look up to in a big way, and that 's a great thing it 's great to have like spiritual giants you know people that you can call on the phone and say uh, things like i 'm not loving my spouse like i should here 's the problem we 've got Could you help me? Could you talk me through this? Could you pray for me it 's great to have people like that in your life one of the uh, one of the byproducts sometimes of having spiritual giants in your life by the way you should all have them i'm not saying you shouldn't have them but one of the one of the unfortunate maybe results is you you, you tend to look at those people and say i'll never measure up i will never measure up and i had a couple mentors in my life and one of them was the pastor in watoma and, and and i looked up to him he spoke into my life into my marriage into my family he, he loved me well he loved christ well and, and I always thought about, like, the day that I might, I might become a senior pastor. And I had offers throughout the years from churches that said, would you consider coming and being a senior pastor at our church? And I always thought, I am just not ready. There, there's no way. I, like, I, I can't do that. Because I always looked at the person above me, my mentor, and said, I can't fill his shoes. And so I'm not ready. for for leadership on that level, for responsibility on that level. But the amazing thing is, I I can remember the conversation like it was yesterday, and my mentor said to me, because I was thinking again about that senior pastorate thing, and he said, Niall, you are ready. You are ready. I believe you're ready. So it's like, okay, okay, let me get this straight. I trust what you're saying to me. I've trusted you for 10 years, you know, and I think you're, you're a great person. I look up to you spiritually and you're telling me I'm ready. So either you're lying, which means you're not very spiritual or maybe you've got a point, you know? And so, and so that helped push me, uh, in, in, into a place where I could say, I think God has prepared me for this. You know, I think God has, has done something here. Um, As we read 1 Timothy 3, and I talk about the qualifications for church leadership, I'm calling these marks of maturity because you're supposed to read this and not say, oh, that's the standard we hold our leaders to. You ought to say, this is the standard I hold myself to. You know, it's all of us. And so maybe you have spiritual giants in your life that you look up to. They are prayer warriors. They are, they are God-fearing, full of the Spirit. You know, just It just comes off of them like that. But, but you ought to say, I too ought to be one of those people. So when we read this, I pray that you don't get that image of like the perfect Christian that you know. But I, I hope that you actually kind of compare yourself and say, so how am I doing? I hope that you look at yourself with sober judgment, as, as, the, as the word says. How mature am I in the faith? What, what places might God be pressing in to me this morning as, as we read this, okay? So I'm talking about qualifications for church leadership. Here it is, First Timothy 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited, and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way their wives, or quite literally it says, in the same way the women are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. What I want to do then in the minutes that we have remaining is summarize five things that this passage says that are marks of maturity for leaders in the church and, in fact, for all of us. For all of us. But but when we come to a uh, congregational meeting and we vote on elders and deacons and deaconesses, these are the things you ought to be thinking about. Do these people match these descriptions? Okay. Number one, if we were to summarize the teaching of Paul, of the Apostle Paul in this passage, we could say, first of all, you've got to have good desire. You've got to have good desire. It's got to be there. If you look at verse one, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, you ought to be able to set your heart on this. This isn't something that someone should coerce you into doing. In fact, the Bible explicitly says that, I believe, in 1 Peter. You have that in your notes but um, it actually says you shouldn't be coerced into becoming a leader in the church. It ought to be something that God has called you to, that you desire. So what I've tried to do in the notes that you have in front of you, I'll try to pull up my copy here and then I'll be set. Um, in the notes you have in front of you, what I've tried to do is, is answer some questions about, uh, ob- you know, not merely objections, but questions people might have about this passage. Okay, I want, I want to help with that area. So, um, you ought to have good desire if you, are, if you want to be a leader in the church. In other words, you should ask yourself, why do I want to be an elder? Why do I want to be a deaconess? Why is this something that I want to do? Is it because I want power? Is it because I want my voice to be known? Is it because I want a clean house and show them how it's really supposed to be done? Or do I have a humble heart that wants to serve people? It's a noble task, it says in 1 Timothy. It's, it's noble. It's good. It's a good thing to want to desire. Do you have the desire of Christ who set the example for how you're supposed to relate to the church? Christ died for the church. Christ showed, how do you serve the church? Well, you wash people's feet. You get down and do the dirty things, the dusty things, the things other people don't want to do. Is that what you want to do? Well, then maybe your heart is in the right place and you have a place in church leadership. It's a noble task. So should you feel guilty if one day the nominating committee calls you up and says, you've been nominated to be an elder or a deacon or a deaconess, would you consider it? Should you feel guilty about telling them no? Well, unless it would just interfere with your golf game, no, you shouldn't feel bad about saying no. If it gets in the way of your hunting and that's not a good thing, then you maybe should feel guilty, okay? But but otherwise, otherwise, you shouldn't feel guilty saying no if God hasn't placed that desire in your heart. He does the calling. And we as human beings look at people in the church and say, oh, they'd make a great elder, they'd make a great deacon, she'd be a great deaconess, but, but we don't know what God has put in your heart. Okay? So the clear teaching of Scripture is you ought to have desire. Secondly, Oh, and one more thing on desire. This is kind of fun. You know, um, we, we want to make it easy on people in this church to say no, okay? And uh, I remember when I was in youth group, uh, we used to, like, prayer's a good thing, right? Prayer's important. And so we would do prayer like this. We would get in a big circle in youth group. We would all join hands in a circle. And, and one of us would start praying. And, when, and whoever started praying, when they're done, they would squeeze the hand of the person next to them. And when you got the squeeze, you could either pray or you could pass by squeezing the hand of the person next to you, right? And it was just like a low-level way of saying, prayer is super important here, we believe in this, this is, this is an important thing that we do. But if you're not comfortable, you can pass. Same way with church leadership, you can pass. It's okay. Okay, now I want to keep going. Um, secondly is, uh, you, if you read this passage, you'd say, the person in leadership ought to have a good reputation. They ought to have a good reputation. Um, it says they should be above reproach, verse two. They should be above reproach. They have to have a good reputation with outsiders. You know, uh, that's verse seven. He must have a good reputation with outsiders so they will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And then a lot of these descriptions of, of elders and deacons is actually things that would be uh, part of that reputation. Are you hospitable? Are you respectable? Uh, these, these kind of things. Um, are you violent? Are you gentle? Are you quarrelsome? Um, your reputation is, is, is who you are, you know, what, the kind of way you live your life. And, and people, both inside and outside the church ought to think well of you if you are loving your enemies well you'll probably have a pretty good reputation both inside and outside the church so reputation is important you ought to consider that um, and, and I know it's not all about rep because I, you know, the Bible also tr- uh, talks about like if one person comes to the church and says I have a, an accusation to make against that elder you got to treat that very carefully and cautiously there ought to be evidence and not just one person that's mad at an elder Okay, the Bible deals with that issue. Reputation is important. When I was in college, I remember uh, I was uh, I had two roommates and, and and I was going into my sophomore year and uh, one of my roommates was a junior, so he was older than me and I'd already room with him the year before. And then I was getting a new roommate that year. Okay, so that's fun. You get a new roommate didn't hadn't met met him yet. So roommates, you know, freshman people have to be on campus a week early and get orientation. How do you handle Chicago life and all that? And, uh, I remember going uh, on my first day, I walk into the room and my, I meet my new roommate and he looks shocked to see me that this freshman guy, you know, he looks shocked when he's looking at me and I'm like, what's the deal? You know, like, why are, why are you looking at me like that? You know? And he's like, oh, well, I, I met the other roommate yesterday and he said a few things about you. You know, he said, first of all, you were 400 pounds and he said, you also had a very bad temper and you got really angry. And it would be really good if I cleaned the bathrooms for the first three months, you know, to kind of keep things, you know, on the good side here, you know. And then I walk in, you know, and I'm not a very angry guy, you know. I just, I don't get angry very easily. So, um, reputation's important. It's important, people. Uh, And and the Bible says that. Because you represent this church, and you represent, more importantly, Christ. Okay? Reputation. Okay, uh, thirdly... A good leader will be someone that has self-control. Self-control. Did you see all of the all of the things that alluded to self-control? Um you've got like above reproach, but then you've got uh temperate, self-controlled, uh you've got not not given to drunkenness verse 3, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You know, you've got all of these things that's kind of like it's kind of like you better be able to control your desire for wealth. I mean, money is is not a bad thing. Money is not evil. The love of it is. So you've got to be able to control that. Alcohol might not be evil, but drunkenness is. So you've so got to be able to control that. And so you see, this is a description of a person who is, is the master of their desires. He's a master of his own desires. That's the kind of person you want in leadership. Not one that is controlled by the sinful temptations that we all face. All right? Now, I do have a question here that I would like to answer, and that is, um, what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Did you see that in here? The husband of but one wife, verse 2. There are different ways to understand that verse. Husband of but one wife wife. Literally in Greek it means it reads a one woman man. You must be a one woman man. Probably five different ways to understand this. I'm not saying that each of them are right or wrong. I think there's a better way to interpret it, but let me give you the the five really quickly. One, no polygamy. You get one wife, you don't get two or three. Okay. Um, Now, The question there, I could could tell lots of good jokes about having multiple spouses, but I'm not going to go there, right, you know, Um, because we all know that, never mind, Um, never mind. You fill the blank with your joke, okay, and you women can say, who would want two or three of those guys, you know, come on, (laughs) all right? (laughs) I should tell a man joke, shouldn't I? That would be better because the women always get the short end of the stick for that, you know. You have three husbands and and stuff still wouldn't get done around the house, right? Those projects still wouldn't get done. Okay, that's all I'm going to do, all right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Here we go. Polygamy, probably not, because we don't have historical records that show that that's a major issue in the church. Like, if we had evidence that, like, that the church was struggling with the issue of polygamy, maybe you'd go there, but we don't. So I think we can safely skip over that. It seems to be more of an Old Testament thing than a New Testament thing, polygamy. Um, Secondly, is this passage saying you can't be celibate. You, 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 you have to have a spouse. No single guys need apply for the issue, of the, for, the, for the elder or deacon thing. And women, you've got to be married if you want to be a deaconess. Is that what it's saying? Again, I don't think so, because Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that when you are single, you're able to be more devoted to the Lord. Really? Singleness leads to more devotion? So much devotion that you can't be a leader? You know, I mean, that does, to me, that doesn't make sense. I don't think it's requiring, that it's outlawing celibacy. Okay, single people have a great ability to serve the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians 7.32. Next one. Does it mean that you uh, can't get remarried if your spouse dies? Think about it. One woman man means that if, if one day Christy dies, I can't get remarried because that would make me a two-woman man. You know, is that what it means? Now, we kind of might chuckle a little bit on that, but it could mean that. I don't think it does. Again, First Corinthians 7.39, Paul says, if you're a woman and your husband dies, you're free to remarry whoever you want, as long as they're a believer, he says. As long as they're a believer. So I don't think it makes sense to say you can't get remarried um, after your spouse's death. Uh, fourthly, and this is an interesting one, no remarriage after divorce. Now this one's open to interpretation. I, I think this one's open. This one, I, I think a lot of people hold this. Uh, but Paul in First Corinthians 7.15 says, If you've got a man and a woman, and they're married, and, and one of them is a believer and one of them is not, and, and the unbeliever leaves, Paul says, let him leave. You're not bound in such circumstances. And of course, that calls into question: what does it mean to be bound? Does bound mean you can you're free now to remarry because you 're not bound anymore, or does bound mean you should just let the person go and stay single you know and that's a whole nother sermon, but if you interpret that verse to mean you may remarry if the unbelieving spouse leaves, then it seems like this might not be talking about no remarriage after divorce maybe maybe I think the most general answer is probably the best one, and that's number five: a one-woman man is one who's faithful to his spouse. You're faithful to your spouse. I think it also fits the context of First Timothy chapter five. Since you're in Timothy, look at First Timothy five two really quick. Uh, 1 Timothy five two. Uh, we'll start in one. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I think there's a good possibility the best way to interpret a one-woman man is to say, you ought to treat ladies with absolute purity. And if there's other ladies in the church that are your age, you better treat them as sisters. And if there's older ladies in the church, you better treat them as mothers. If there's younger ladies, you better treat them as younger sisters. One-woman man, you only have eyes for her. Purity is required of leaders. Okay, I, I think that's a great way to interpret this verse. I respect people who disagree with me on that, but it seems like I also think that that that's like the flow of the thought, right? He's giving general guidelines. I don't think he's trying to get super specific with that. The other, the other problem with a one woman man, just I'm going to throw this out real quick. The other problem with interpreting a one woman man, the reason this is so hard is because we can't find that phrase anywhere else in ancient literature. Like, did Paul make that phrase up? Was this something that the church would like know? Like, oh, we talk, that's like a slang term, you know? Uh, We don't have that phrase in ancient literature. So it's hard to nail down exactly what it means. Just so you know, it's a a problematic phrase. But there it is. Okay, we're going to keep going. They have to have self-control. Fourthly... They should be able to teach. They should be able to teach or, I think, slash in your notes it says, hold to the truth. Um, We're talking about as an elder or an overseer, that person must be able to teach. Um, But it says, uh, deacons have to, verse 9, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. So, elders should be able to teach. That's uh, verse 2 deacons and deaconesses ought to to hold hold fast to the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, good doctrine, okay? So um, does that mean then that every single elder has to be a teaching elder? I've heard some ministry colleagues say yes. All of your elders better have a teaching ministry. Would you look with me at, um, where am I at? At five, chapter 5, verse 17 in First Timothy, I'd like to answer that question, I hope, definitively. First Timothy 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. It sounds like there's two different categories here. There's some elders that are going to govern the church, shepherd people, and there's some elders whose main focus is teaching and preaching. like, there's, there, that, but, but every elder ought to be able to sit down with somebody and say, so you don't believe in the deity of Christ? Let me show you some scriptures to help you see it correctly. Okay, There's different levels of teaching is what I'm saying. There's people up front that preach like this. There's, there's teachers who might have a class. There's small group leaders. Those people might teach. There's one-on-one teaching. You're sitting down talking with somebody. I tell you, I had in 7th grade a stuttering Sunday school teacher. Stuttering people. He would like open the Bible and he would say, now let's turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to talk about... I mean, every Sunday that's what it was. I'm not kidding you. And... Being a guy in Sunday school class, you better believe that when he when he was out of the room, people made fun of him. But me, I was more impressed that a person who couldn't speak c- c- clearly would be bold enough to teach me the word of God. That's how it struck me. So you might say, is that an example of of a, of a person that's not gifted to teach, but he's trying to do it anyway? I don't know. Maybe. But it impacted me in a big, big way. If he could get in front of some rowdy seventh graders, man. And I listened. And I listened. So you might not be the upfront elder teacher, but you ought to be able to open the Word of God and say, This is what the Lord says. Okay. Um, all right. I want to keep moving. Number five, and lastly. Good management of family. Uh, Both elders and deacons are both commanded to be good managers of their family. Uh, You see that in verse 12. They must manage his children and his household well. And the idea is, if you can't manage your family, how can you manage the family of God, the church? One is connected to the other. You've got to be able to do both well. Which brings up the hard question of, what if, what if, you're an elder in the church, deacon in the church, deaconess, and your kids grow up and they become rebellious. Men who men who are uh, older in years and their kids are all grown up and out and they will not become an elder because they feel like they failed somewhere along the way. A couple things to keep in mind. This is the command of God. If you can't manage your family well, you shouldn't be in church leadership. A couple things I'd like to say, though, just so we can keep that. Let's think biblically about this. First of all, I'd remind you of the parable of the prodigal son. God is the father in the prodigal son, perfect dad. The prodigal son came of age, asked for his inheritance, walked out the door, and lived a wild, immoral life. The father's still the Father. The father's still a representation of God to us. And if God gives us the freedom to walk away from everything that we know to be true, that's our free will. You know, we've got to keep that in mind. You also have to keep in mind Ephesians 5 verse 1. Kids, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. It's a commandment with a promise, right? That it may go well with you. Apparently, normally, if you obey your parents, you get longer life. Normally, that's how it works out. Not, not always. That's, that's not like an every single time. But, but often, God is going to bless you with long life because you've honored your parents. And honoring father and mother doesn't stop when you get 18 or 21 or whatever age you, you, you magical age. I remember talking to a young man once who graduated high school. Wanted to go into the army. Oh, man, he wanted to sign up. Something. I mean, he just wanted that so badly. Love God loved his country, and wanted to serve. And his family said, you will not sign up. And he he talked to me and said, what do I do? I'm 18. Legally, I can do what I want with my life. But my parents have said no. And my response to him was, somehow you've got to figure out how to honor your parents. How do you honor your parents and honor what you feel like God has called you to do in life? dare you break the command to honor father and mother to sign up for the military um that story had a more peaceful ending because they talked it through and he ended up and, and the parents ended up giving their blessing you know that that it, it was a reversal of their decision but honoring parents goes on and on and on um it may not mean strict obedience you know Uh, My parents don't tell me how to do my marriage. That wouldn't be appropriate. But they can certainly speak into my life. Um, Where am I going with that? Uh, Management of family, uh, it it seems like there's a double responsibility here. Fathers and mothers, you better train your kids, but kids, you better obey your parents and honor them. Both sides have a responsibility here. So I would say when it comes to good management of family, we treat this on a case-by-case basis if your kids are grown up and out of the house and they've made a decision not to follow Christ, that may be out of your hands completely. It might be like prodigal son. you know. But if you've got kids in high school and they're, let's say they're doing drugs or something and you can't get a handle on them and they're living a wild lifestyle, um, maybe you should not be a leader so that you can focus on your family more. You know, I mean, that's just like, duh, biblical wisdom there. The rule is you should be able to manage your family well if you're going to manage this family well. And that's what we hold to. Okay. Um, finally. Man, can I finish in three minutes so we can have... Eric, do we want to reprise that one more time? We'll... All right, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. I... Three minutes, I can do it. Um, I want to deal just quickly with the with the question. A lot of people ask me this. Uh, why no female pastors or elders at this church? Boy, I could do a whole message on that and talk it up and, and, and really... really uh, we could wrangle about this, but but I want to keep it really simple, okay? And if you want to talk to me later, we can talk later, okay? Um, first of all, I want to tell you that in this church we affirm the equality and the interdependence of men and women. You know that, that's Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, nor female. You're all one in Christ. There's equality in the sexes, okay? I I know that there are ladies who could probably teach better or study deeper than I can go. That That's, of course, because we're equal. We also affirm that, that men and women are interdependent. That comes out of 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 11 and 12. It says, man is not independent of woman, nor woman is independent of man, because actually men are born from women. And so, I mean, just nature teaches us that we need each other. We're not independent of each other. Okay. So there's equality, there's interdependence. This is nothing like a male power trip. That's not what the scriptures teach at all. And if anyone suggests that, they're wrong. Secondly, we affirm that God has ordained specific roles for men and women in the church. And and again, it's not based on equality, it's not based on who's better at what. I'm certain if if, if uh, the, the role was reversed, women could lead well, you know. God, we look at these passages, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and, and you'll see, without me going there, you can look at that later on your own, you'll see things like uh, Paul saying in 1 Timothy 2, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent. It says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. So, Paul is explaining this is the structure of the church that God has set out. And the reason he's doing it this way comes from the created order in Genesis. He goes back to the beginning for his reasoning. So some people in some churches will tell you, and I've heard the arguments, I've read brilliant people writing on this topic. And they will say that's just a cultural thing. that that Back then, men were just trying to silence women. It was just cultural. But when I read the scriptures, I see... I see created order, that God made it this way and wants the church to reflect a certain created order. If you look at the 1 Corinthians passages, Paul says um, that, that women, are not, uh, women are silent because of the law. He goes back to the Old Testament law, and you say, Old Testament law, where in the Old Testament law does it say that men should be leaders in religious settings and women should not? I, I can't really find it. I looked this week. I, I don't see it. I do see passages that say things like this. Uh, There's one, uh, I should have written it down. There's one that says if a man and a woman, husband and wife, if the woman makes a vow, have you read this one? A woman makes a vow to do something and the husband hears it, he can break that vow for her. He can say, that's not good for our family and that vow is not binding on you. He can break the vow when he hears of it that the woman takes. But then the, the scripture says, if the woman makes the vow, the husband hears it, and doesn't say anything about it, then the woman's got to keep her vow. You know? But but it's like, God wants to have a certain order in the family. He wants husbands to be the chief servant leader in the family. It's not a power trip. It's chief servant. It's, it's loving your wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificially. It's not... Uh, wife, get me dinner because I'm ready to watch the football game. It's, maybe I ought to turn the football game off so I can love my wife sacrificially. Yikes! You know? Like, that's what I mean by chief servant. It's harder than what you think. So I see a created order in the Scriptures that I don't want to violate. Okay? We are trying to address... Uh, the issue of women and leadership by having a women's advisory council. I spoke about that at the last congregational meeting. Um, right now that's on hold because we're looking for more um, board members so we have a full board before we add a, a second advisory council to that. So we're working out some details there. That's still coming. Okay. So um, all that to say, would you take everything that we've talked about today and ask yourself this, what, is God trying? What is what is God trying to put His finger on this morning in your life? Are there some immature areas you have that God is saying that is it? Because that's the best way to respond to this passage. Come June, we hope that you respond to this passage by thinking biblically about: Am I voting yes or no about these elders, deacons, and deaconesses based on these qualifications? By the way, oh, deaconesses. Someone will ask me about deaconesses. Where do I see that in this passage? I'll tell you where I see it, and then, then we'll go. That's what I get for doing this without notes. Sorry. Um, 1 Timothy 3, uh, I'm not going to find enough time. i want to to leave time for choir, but let's say this. 1 Timothy 3 says, and their wives must also. Is that verse in there? The wives must also. Literally, it says, and the women also. It doesn't say wives. It actually just says women. We interpret that to mean women carried the same role as the deacons that were just talked about earlier. It says, and their wives, but literally it says, and the women also. We interpret that to mean deaconesses are something that God has also given to the church. Okay. Let me pray for us. I'll invite the... Let's invite the choir up. We got time. We have time. We'll do it. So uh, let me pray. Choir, come. start coming up, all right? Let's do that. Father, thank you for... Um, thank you for showing us what it means to be a mature Christian. And God, none of us have arrived. I pray that nobody in here believes that they've really arrived at the mature standpoint, that, that, that they are they're there, there's nowhere else to grow. God, keep us from that pride, keep us from that arrogance, and, and show us the places that you want to claim as yours in our life. I pray for our board right now our elders, deacons, and deaconesses, oh God, that you would make them men and women worthy of the calling of leadership in the church. That you'd fill them with your spirit and and give them wisdom. Give them ability. Give them perseverance when they deal with the hard things. Give them vision for new things that you want to do here at this church. And may we, your people, follow godly leadership.